Okay, today, we are, if, you've, if you're a visitor or if you've been on vacation, we are in the third week of a 10-week summer sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Tom, in the first week, talked not only about the first commandment, but also gave us a context for why we're doing this. Last week, talked about the second commandment. And this week, I'm going to talk about the third commandment. Now, the third commandment, I think the way I originally heard it, and the way most people originally heard it, is in the King James Version of that commandment. So we're going to take a look at that and see how it's worded there. It says, Thou shalt not, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now, when I read that commandment, two things strike me immediately. One is that relative to some of the other commandments, this one just doesn't seem like it ought to be that big of a deal. I mean, I immediately understand why God would prohibit a thing like murder or adultery or stealing or lying. Those things make perfect sense. But this one doesn't seem to carry the same weight as the others. I mean, why is it that if God's going to give us 10 rules, 10 things out of all the things you could possibly mention, this would be one of them. And so there's got to be more to this than strikes me at least at first glance. To equate this with murder or adultery, again, objectively doesn't seem to make sense. So what, what is going on here? What's sort of the story behind the story with this commandment? That's one of the things we want to look at this morning. The second thing is this. This is the only one of the Ten Commandments that attaches a proclamation of guilt to those who violate it. Again, it says the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now, we don't see that same pronouncement of guilt attached to murder. It doesn't say the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh another's life. It doesn't say that. And, and again, I would think, objectively, we would think that murder would carry a lot more weight than this one would. So why is this the only one of the Ten Commandments that has a pronouncement of guilt attached to it? Those are two things we're going to look at today. I think that one of the reasons that we're a little confused by what this commandment says is that the King James Version for all its strengths, I think, misses a little bit of what the, the weight of the commandment is. The verb they translate as take the name of the Lord, that verb take, should really be translated. A better one is it suggests a sense that we carry his name, that we carry the name of the Lord. And I think the NIV translation of the commandment gives us a better sense of why this is such a big deal and why God attaches so much importance to it. It says, again in the NIV, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, you, typically when Tom gives a sermon, he gives us a sermon in a sentence. I'm not going to do that today. What I'm going to do instead is give you the two questions we're going to try to answer today. And they, they are simply this. The first is, what does it mean to misuse the name of God? And the second is, why does God regard this offense as so terrible that this would be the one commandment of the ten that he attaches a judgment of guilt to it? So let me pray, and then we'll jump in and look at, try to address these two questions. Father, we just pray for clarity this morning, that we will understand why it is that we are to treat your name with respect and honor, and to not treat it casually or disrespectfully. So Father, help us to understand this morning why your name carries so much weight, that we may live a life that is pleasing to you and carry your name well. We ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, it seems to me, in looking at these commandments more deeply, that we can violate them in one of three ways. The first one is the obvious one. The first one is the one we probably think of immediately when we read this commandment. And that is, we can use, we can use the name of the Lord disrespectfully or use it as, a, as an oath, even as a profanity. I mean, it's difficult to watch a movie and not see the, hear the name of Jesus used as a profanity, right? 
And that really doesn't make much sense if you, if you step back and just think about that objectively. I mean, we don't really traditionally or usually use names of people who respect as a, as a profanity. We don't take, you wouldn't use your mother's name as an oath. You wouldn't take the name of somebody like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, somebody who, again, we respect and use their name in a disparaging way. If we're going to do that, it seems to me we ought to take a name like somebody like Adolf Hitler. Nobody likes Adolf Hitler. Nobody respects him. If we want to use somebody's name as a curse word, it ought to be his, not the name of Jesus. As a matter of fact, maybe we as a church body could sort of start that trend. And <laughs> so the next time you're upset, try Hitler and just see if, that, see if we can get it to take root. But again, it doesn't really make sense to use the name of Jesus in such a way, but we do. Maybe you don't, but we certainly hear it all the time. And it's a strong likelihood that some of us at least do. And even if we don't do that, I think there's ways we can take the name of the Lord in vain or take the na- misuse the name of the Lord that we don't even realize are a problem. We don't even realize that we're misusing his name. For instance, when we say things like, my God, or good Lord, or oh my God, or when we write the text and we write OMG, now, we don't really typically think of that as a violation of the third commandment, but isn't that exactly what we're doing? Aren't we using the name of, taking the name of God and using it lightly, flippantly, cavalierly? Every time I stub my toe or every time I hit my thumb with a hammer, my temptation is to, is to consign my, that piece of furniture or, or that hammer to eternal damnation using the name of God. That's what we do, isn't it? And we're using the name, we're using the name of God flippantly. We're using the name without the proper respect we ought to use. And, and again, when we pull back from that and look at it, that doesn't really make sense, but we do that. James warns us against that. He says we're to use our tongues in a very different way. Let me read from James 3. He says, with it, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? So we should not, on one hand, come to church on Sunday and praise the name of God and then turn around in our daily lives and use his name disrespectfully, dishonorably. That is violating the third commandment. Now, ancient Jews in biblical times revered the name of God so highly they would not pronounce it aloud. They would not say it aloud, and when they would write it, they would write, they would basically abbreviate it because they did not want to in any way treat it with disrespect. Even today, the Orthodox, Orthodox Jews will still, when they write out the, the word God, they'll write G and then put a hyphen and then D because they want to treat the name of God with such respect. They don't want to treat it casually. In 2008, Vatican issued a directive to its priests saying that when you perform a mass, do not use the the word God. Use the word Lord or use the word Adonai in talking about God because we want to make sure the name of God is treated with great respect. Now, as Protestants, we treat the name of God much more casually. But if you think about what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. In other words, treat his name as sacred. We're commanded to do that. And so we should not use it flippantly. One of the things the King James Version gets right is when they talk about using the Lord's name in vain. In vain means to use it for a worthless purpose. We should not use the name of God in a worthless purpose. We should instead use it the way Paul talks about the name of Jesus in Philippians when he says this, it is a name above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. 
There are a hundred things we can do with God's name. We can speak it, we can worship it, we can trust it, we can adore it, we can cherish it, exalt it, we can enjoy it. That's the way we should treat God's name. In the name of God, we can pray, we can preach, we can teach, we can worship, we can baptize, we can rejoice, we can love. Those, the, those ways of using God's name are appropriate. That's what we should do, but that's not what we do. Instead, we use God's name as a throwaway, as a throwaway epithet and treat it with disrespect. The third commandment forbids us to do that. Here's a second way we can misuse God's name, and that is by treating God's name with disrespect when we make promises in the name that we don't really intend to keep. Now, how do we do that? Well, I would suggest it's very easy to do it every Sunday morning. I mean, every Sunday morning we come in here and we do certain things. We pray in his name. How often do we daydream through the prayer? How often are we asked to read prayers aloud from the screen and don't even pay attention to the words? How often do we have a confession of sin in the church and, the, again, the words are on the screen and we don't pay much attention to what we're saying? How often do we sing songs as a part of a worship service and, and don't pay much attention to the words? Those are all ways in which we can make implicit promises to God with no real intention of keeping them. We treat the things of God and make these promises with casual indifference. Here's another example. Every time we baptize a child, as a part of the ceremony, as a part of that sacrament, the pastor will at some point turn to the congregation and will hold that child up and will ask us to stand and will ask the members of Green Tree, do you promise that you will participate in raising this child in a way that will, in, which, in which he or she will grow up to be a child of God? And we all say yes to that. Now, we're making a promise there, aren't we? To in some way participate in being an example for that child or teaching that child or showing that child how to worship or do something to point that child to Jesus. Do we just say those words or do we mean it? Do we keep our word when we pray to God and when we make promises to God or do we just say things casually and walk away? Numbers 32, 30, chapter, chapter 30, verse 2, tells us how seriously we are to take the promises we make to God. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Simply put, that means that when we say to God we're going to do something, we need to do it. Now, we should do that anyway. Christian and non-Christian alike should do that. But when we're Christians and we make a promise to God, then we, are, we should do it. When we say we're going to participate in the spiritual instruction of the children of this church, do we just say the words and walk away and never think about what that means? Or think about what happens whenever we install, we install, install officers in this church. There will come a time in, I don't know, a few weeks from now when the elders and the deacons who will be newly installed will stand before you, and they will take a vow. They'll say these words. These, these are from the Book of Order. It says, this is a question that will be asked to our, to our new officers. Are you now willing to take responsibility in the life of this congregation as a ruling elder, and will you seek to discharge your duties relying upon the grace of God in such a way the entire church of Jesus Christ will be blessed. Will you discharge your duties in such a way the entire church will be blessed? What that means is the elders cannot come to the table with their own agenda, with their own egos paramount. They cannot do that. They have to ask always and consider always what is best for the, for the welfare of the body of Christ. That's the question every elder, every deacon needs to ask. And in the same way, as a part of the installation service, the pastor will turn to the congregation and will ask this question. Do you, the members of Green Tree Community Church, 
receive these persons as ruling elders, and do you continue your promise to yield to them and all your officers all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which the ordination as an officer entitles them, according to the word of God and the constitution of the evangelical Presbyterian church. And everybody says, yes, I will, or yes, I do, or whatever it is, however you respond. But think about what the commitment that the congregation is making to yield to them and all your offices, honor, encouragement, and obedience. Whoa. That means that we will not stir up dissent. We will not stir up disunion. It's certainly fine to disagree with decisions that the church officers make. We have that right. And when, when we disagree with something that's been done, please, people of this congregation should go to the officers of the church and say, you know, I don't understand why you made that decision. Can you help me to understand it? Can you walk me through that? I don't agree with that. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We have every right to voice our point of view. But we need to do so in a way, again, that honors, encourages, and is an act of obedience, trying to build unity and build a common direction for the sake of the kingdom of God. We make those promises. Do we take them seriously? Do we recognize that in failing to keep those promises, we're violating the third commandment? Here's another way I'd do it. The number of times somebody has come to me and said, will you pray for me? And I walk away and I say, yes, I will. And then walk away and forget to do it is way too high. Most of the times I remember, but sometimes I don't. So I make a promise, an explicit promise in this case, in the name of God to pray for somebody and sometimes do not do it. So again, that's a violation of the third commandment. When we make a promise, we need to keep it. You see, worship is serious business. What we do here at church is not just routine. It's not just a habit. It's not tradition. It's about honoring God and trying to be men and women of God. In a few minutes, we're going to come to the, we're going to come to the communion table. And Corb Heimberger is going to lead us through this sacrament. The word sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which, is, which comes from the idea of a soldier's oath of loyalty to his general or to his emperor. When we come to this table, we are swearing our loyalty to God. We are coming in humility and in surrender and in submission to his purposes. And we need to do so with a great sense of reverence. That's one of the reasons that every time we come to the communion table, whoever, whatever pastor is leading us through this sacrament will say to us, examine your hearts carefully. Because this matters. We're making a promise to God of what we will do. And this is a holy moment. Malachi 1, 6 to 8, gives us, gives us a sense of how important this is. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. In other words, we expect a son to honor his father. We expect a daughter to honor her father. We expect a servant to honor his or her master. That's just understood. But why, priests, do you not honor me, says God? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? You see, in Old Testament times, when people would come to offer sac- would come and ask the priest to offer sacrifices on their behalf at the altar, they were expected to bring their best animals, their, their spotless lamb, their unblemished lamb. But what they would do instead, they would basically go through their herd and they'd pick out 
the lame sheep. They'd pick out the blind sheep, the sick sheep, the one they wanted to get rid of, the one they, that wouldn't have any real market value. They'd bring that to the priest, or the priest would do it himself, and they would offer that, that as a sacrifice. And God is saying, don't treat me with disrespect. Don't give me less than your best. You wouldn't do that to the governor. Why would you do that to me? In the same way, when we come to this table or when we participate in worship in any way, we need to, we need to, we need to examine our hearts carefully and, and bring a great sense of reverence to what we do. Here's a third way we can misuse the name of the Lord. As I said earlier, as Christians, we carry the name of the Lord everywhere we go. Now, God could easily have chosen to reveal himself to us in a spectacular way. If I were God, that's, that's, that's what I would have done. I would have gone with a fireball, earthquake, choir of angels approach to reveal my presence to the world. God didn't do that. That's not how he chose to act. What he did was he came in the form of a man, and he lived among us for 33-ish years. And he, and he took 12 guys, and he said, I'm staking it all on you. I'm laying the future of the church at your feet, and it's up to you to make this happen. Now, here we are 2,000 years later. We're, we're the recipients of their legacy. And now he lays it at our feet. And he says, okay, people of Green Tree Community Church, if the work of God is going to be done in this community, it's going to be done by you. I'm not going to use a fireball. You're going to have to do it. And so every one of us who is a child of God carries the name of God. And we go into the community to our workplace, and our neighborhoods, to our schools, wherever we go, and we carry that name. And every time we misuse that name, we are violating the third commandment. My jealousy, my anger, my hypocrisy, when I cut corners at work, when I cheat at school, when I treat people with less than the respect they deserve as someone created in the image of God, when I treat somebody badly because of their gender, their ethnicity, or their race, because of their religion, when I do those things, I am misusing the name of God. I am impediment to the work of the kingdom of God. We must carry the name of God with dignity and honor and respect. Because when an atheist misuses the name, when an atheist does something bad, nobody, nobody, it brings no disrepute to the name of God. When I do, when we do, it brings disrepute to the name of God. We have a responsibility as his agents, as his ambassadors in this community to carry the name well. And that's why God takes the misuse of his name so seriously. That's why there's a judgment attached to it. And we know this is true. I mean, think about the public relations problem that Muslims have. There's a small percentage of Muslims who've chosen to do some really, really terrible things. The Boston Marathon bombers or the shoe bomber or the 19 hijackers on 9-11, ISIS, Al-Qaeda. I mean, all of Islam is tarred with a, with a, with a terrible brush because of the actions of a minority. The average Muslim who is going to shop at Schnucks this afternoon, who simply wants to live a life worshiping God as he or she understands it and raising his family and doing a good job at work, is, is, has a stigma attached to his or her name simply because of their faith. And, and it's true for Christians as well. I mean, think about, think about the stigma attached to Christianity because of the actions from people from, West, from Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka. They're the people who go to military funerals and picket. They're the ones who, who go to gay pride events and hold up signs that say, God hates fags. And so people say of Christians, well, they're judgmental and they're hypocritical and they're mean-spirited. And that stigma is attached to us because they don't carry God's name well. 
And every time a pastor becomes involved in a sex scandal and runs off with a church secretary or a Catholic priest preys upon an innocent child, every time we do anything to bring dishonor to God's name, we're violating the third commandment. Our, when we cut corners in our business practices, our hot temper, our hypocrisy, all bring dishonor to his name. Romans 2, to 24 says this, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God's name is blasphemed among non-believers because of me, because of us. Those of us who carry the name of Christ and be a stench in the eyes of the world, will we be an aroma of hope? And that's not just true in our personal lives. That's also true in the macro level. I mean, the history of the church is pretty sad in terms of our ability to be on the wrong side of all kinds of social issues. The fact that people use the Bible to defend slavery is an abomination. The people that use, that use the Bible to defend the right to deny women the vote is an abomination. The, people, the fact that people use the Bible to defend segregation well into the lifetime of many people in this room is an abomination. And a question I think each of us needs to ask is this. What is it that we do that people 100 years from now are going to look back and say, how could the church have done that? How could the church have been blind to that social evil? And that's a question, I mean this very seriously, that haunts me. That's a question I ask myself a lot. What am I blind to in this society? What do I fail to see? What do I walk by every day and not even recognize that that's evil? So I think as individuals we need to ask that question. I think as a church we need to ask that question. What is our responsibility to be a light in this community, in this world? Again, individually and collectively. Do we stand on the wrong side of any issues today that one day people look at and shake their head and say, how could the church have been so blind? Here's another thing we do. We can also twist the name of God for our own selfish purposes. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were watching TV, and there was a news story about a, a Louisiana televangelist who was making an appeal to the members of his, his flock asking that they donate $54 million so he could buy his fourth jet so he could execute his ministry more successfully. Now, this man has a net worth estimated to be $50 million, and yet he wanted the poor people who were watching him on television, the middle-class people watching him on television, to give him $54 million for jet number four. Now, I think it's fair to say that man is misusing the name of God. But he's not alone. A 2006 Pew Forum poll found that 46% of self-identified Christians identify with this statement. God will grant material prosperity to those who have enough faith. In other words, we expect God to bless us and give us what we want. He's going to make me rich if I simply have enough faith. That's misusing the name of God, too. And we can see that very clearly from the book of Acts. There's a very strange encounter with a guy named Simon, a sorcerer. Let me read that, let me read that passage to you from, from Acts 8. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. <coughs> Excuse me. But when they believed Philip... As he proclaimed the good news, the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So far, so good. Simon the sorcerer 
hears the word of God, is baptized, and now is following Philip, one of the 12 apostles, to learn more about how to be a man of God. But now, then the story takes a bad turn. We skip a few verses. In the interim verses, some of the other disciples come to Samaria. They begin to participate, participate in the ministry. We pick it up in verse 18. When Simon, uh, when Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and a captive to sin." So what was Simon's sin? He wanted to use the things of God for his own selfish purpose. He wanted to use the name of God to basically bring favor to his own name. That is a violation of the third commandment. When we use the things of God to curry favor, when we place expectations on God that he will give us what we want, when we think, okay, God, you owe me this one. And so we think, well, okay, God, I, want to, I, I expect you to give me the man or woman of my dreams, the job I want, the car I want. Whatever it is, whatever expectation we place on him, whenever, when we bring a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately attitude toward our service to God, we forget that what Jesus calls us to do is this, deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. Jesus promises that he will love us and care for us and walk us through the trials of life. He doesn't promise that we'll be free from the cares of life. He doesn't promise us that we're going to be rich. He doesn't promise that we're going to get everything we want. What he promises is that he will give us what we need out of his wisdom and love for us. We want God to march to the beat of our drum. He says, no, we need to march to the beat of his drum. We can't use his name selfishly. We can't use his name in in a way that makes us look good. We can't use his his name in a way in which we expect him to give us what we want. So here's the fundamental question. Do we live to bring honor to our name, or do we live to bring honor to his name? God has many names. The Almighty, Everlasting, the Good Shepherd, the Rock, the Healer, the Provider, the Prince of Peace, the Anointed One, the Redeemer, the Most High God. Every one of those names suggests a sense of awe and majesty and reverence. There's nothing flippant about any of those names. There's nothing cavalier or casual about any of them. We are not to use the name of God casually. We're not to use it selfishly. We're not to use it to serve our own purposes. That's why we'll not be found guiltless when we violate the third commandment, because we're saying to people, this is who God is. We're misrepresenting the name of God. God stakes his ministry on us. And because he does, we must carry his name well. It's a great responsibility to carry the name of God well. It's also a great privilege. It's a great honor. To think that the God of the universe looks and sees ordinary people like us, who are sinful people, who haven't figured it out, whose theology is limited, whose understanding of God is limited, and says, it's all on you. Go out in the community and do it well. Love your families well. Love your coworkers well. Love your fellow students well. Love your neighbors well. That's what he does. I think the best way to end is with the words of Exodus 9.16. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may, may be proclaimed in all the earth. He, he, he gives us the duty, the challenge, the opportunity to proclaim his name in all the earth through our words, through our examples, through our actions. That's an unbelievable privilege. It's a great responsibility. And that's how we keep the third commandment. 
Let's close in prayer. Father, you are good to us. And the fact that you look at people like us who are so limited, who have such a tiny understanding of what it means to be a, a child of God, and you say, okay, it's all on you. And then you empower us through, the, through your Holy Spirit to go into the community to carry your name. It's an unbelievable privilege, and I just pray you would help each of us to do that well, to honor you with our words, honor you with our lives, honor you with our devotion. Thank you, Father, for giving us this gift. In Christ's holy name, amen. Amen.